Mets Chat is brought to you by Walters. While the national season may be winding down, fall sports are just around the corner. Are you looking for a place to host your fantasy football draft with over 30 TVs, free Wi-Fi, and buckets of wings and beers? There's no better place to host your draft party than Walters. With plenty of room indoors or outside on the covered patio, contact Brett at waltersdc.com to reserve your space today. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Nolan comes set. Checking the runner at second. The kick in the pitch. Swing and a miss at a good low fastball. He struck him out. Nolan has his sixth strike out of the second time. He is fanned. The opposing pitcher, Stroman. Here's the pitch from Thompson. And it's hit in the air to deep left center field. Way back goes Thomas to the warning track, to the wall, and it's gone. Mets lead for the first time in the game and the first time in the series, 5-3. to three. And welcome to Nats Chat for Sunday, August 29th, 2021, along with Nationals insider Mark Zuckerman of MassInSports.com. I'm Al Galdi, host of the Al Galdi podcast. Well, if you are into patterns, if you are a creature of routine, I have a pattern. I have a routine for you. So the Nationals right now are in the midst of a three-game series at the New York Mets, concluding a nine-game road trip. Each of the series has had the same scenario over the first two games. Game one is a Nats win in which the Nationals hold the opposing team to one run. Game two is a Nats loss in which the bullpen falters to at least some extent in the latter innings. We had this at Milwaukee. We had this at Miami. And unfortunately, We now have this after the Mets off a good-looking 2-1 win on Friday night. The Nationals fall 5-3 on Saturday evening as the game was delayed for a second straight day. Game one was delayed due to rain. Game two was delayed due to Jerry Kuzman, more specifically his number, being retired. But anyway, the Nationals bullpen giveth and the Nationals bullpen gaveth away. And uh, the latter was the case, unfortunately, on Saturday. Real quick on Jerry Kuzman, who, you know, good for him. That was a nice thing for the Mets to retire his number. I did not realize this is only the third number or a player's number the Mets have retired over the years. Jerry Kuzman was the, you know, a hero for them in 1969. He last pitched for the Mets in 1978. He retired in 1985. What took so long? What possible reason was there to wait this long to retire Jerry Kuzman's number? So I can actually talk about this a little bit because both of my parents are from New York. My dad's a huge Mets fan. The first game I ever went to was a Mets-Cardinals game in 1987 at Chase Stadium. Terry Leach was a starting pitcher. And well, for the Mets, the previous ownership, the Wilpons, had this bizarro thing where they were like almost bigger Brooklyn Dodgers fans than they were Mets fans. It was very odd. It was very strange. 
And so it's actually not that surprising that it would take this long for someone like Kuzman to have his number retired. But it is surprising because in New York, when it comes to the Mets, they still so live off that 1969 team. Like the tabloids refer to the Mets to this day as the Amazons based on the amazing Mets. That was 50 plus years ago. You would think maybe it's time to kind of move on from that, you know? But it's like, no, 1969 and to a lesser extent, 1986. Like those two years come up all the time to this day if you're a Mets fan, because the truth is there aren't that many other good years to look back upon fondly. Well, I'm just going to say, maybe if they had won another World Series since yeah. 1986, they'd have something else to uh, harken back to. They do not. But you're right. Every time I'm there, it is amazing. There's <laughs> no pun intended. 69 and 86. That is all over the place. That is all they talk about. They have been living off those for a long time. Let's just say to bring this back to the Nationals. Obviously, the Nats are going to be playing off of 2019 for a long time. But let's hope that 50 years later, they have some more to refer to and don't have to go all the way back to 2019 to celebrate anything. For sure. You know, I had that same thought today, too. I was like, all right, it's one thing to still have guys like Gerardo Parr and Javi Guerra this year, but let's try to get away from 2019 as the years go on. Respect it, honor it, pay homage to it. But yeah, you want to have other memories beyond just like one or two. It's funny, too, in New York, because you have the Jets in 69 with the Namath game, and boy, does that franchise cling to that game. So you have those two things in 69, and for those two franchises, the Mets and Jets who... Uh, have names that rhyme and who have very similar paths of like same old Mets, same old Jets, you know, perpetually struggling, never as good as the big brother, Giants, Yankees, etc. I don't know, that just always kind of made me laugh. But anyway, that's a New York thing. This is not a New York podcast. This is a Washington Nationals podcast. And once again, some good stuff from potential young building blocks in this Nats game on Saturday night. We saw Lane Thomas strike as he's back on track after that brutal two-game slump. We saw Riley Adams do well, but we did see the bullpen And I don't want to say crumble. I mean, look, these guys are inexperienced. I mean, we know what we're getting here with this bullpen, but it was tough because you got this really well-pitched game from Sean Nolan. I mean, you know, we don't know what to expect from these Sean Nolan starts, right? I mean, this basically comes off as the Nationals are just pitching him because he's someone to pitch. I don't think they really view him as any kind of a long-term piece, but Sean Nolan goes out there on Saturday night, does a really nice job, two runs in five and a third inning, six strikeouts versus no walks. The bullpen then takes over. We have seen some good outings from the bullpen here lately, but the bullpen is unable to get the job done. Now, initially, things go well. Patrick Murphy comes into the game, man on first, one out, game tied at two, bottom of the six, faces two batters, gets the final two outs, strikes out Pete Alonso on six pitches, so that is good. But then Ryan Harper and Mason Thompson falter in what ends up being a three-run Mets seventh. Harper faces three batters, gives up a leadoff single of Jeff McNeil on an 0-2 pitch and issues a hit-by-pitch of Kevin Millar before getting it out Mason Thompson comes into the game, and on the first pitch that he throws, gives up a pinch go-ahead one-out three-run homer to Michael Conforto for a 5-3 Mets lead. And then Thompson gives up a one-out double to Jonathan Villar in a shot uh, before getting the final two outs. Thompson did toss a scoreless bottom of the eighth with a couple of strikeouts, but I actually felt bad for Sean Nolan. You know me, I'm not big on the win or anything like that, and not that I was all caught up in that, but... The Nats should have won this game. Harper and Thompson, unfortunately, unable to come through. Yeah, if you can get five and a third innings of two-run ball, no walks, six strikeouts from Sean Nolan, you got to try to win that game somehow, right? You would hope that you'd emerge from that victorious. Didn't happen. You could say that, well, try to score a few more runs would help as well. It's a little bit tough to try to win every game three to two uh, or two to one like they did on Friday night. But, you know, Thompson... 
I didn't think it was that bad of a pitch. It was it was over the plate, but it was kind of down and away a little bit. And I thought Conforter did a nice job to drive it the other way. Some hitters, lefties, might try to pull that ball. And the next thing you know, you're popping it up or you're hitting a ground ball. So I thought it was a nice piece of hitting. But, you know, I think as Davey Martinez described it afterwards, if you're coming in, you're facing a pinch hitter. We know that's always going to be an aggressive approach from those guys in those spots. You got to make sure that first pitch is perfect. And I think the sense was they wanted it well down and away as opposed to still in the strike zone. And he couldn't do that. But by the same token, if Ryan Harper doesn't put two runners on in front of him, then it doesn't mean as much. I mean, it might tie the game, but it's not going to turn the whole game around like that. And all of a sudden they're facing a two run deficit. And so I want to go back to Harper, who we've talked about all summer long. Why is he not pitching in big spots? What does Davey have against him? Well, he got to pitch in a high leverage spot, seventh inning, one run lead, and he gives up a hit, and then the hit batter on a curveball. Next thing you know, he's out of the game, and and he officially does take the loss. Again, not paying that much attention to who takes wins and losses, but you know Harper was just as responsible for this one, I think, as Thompson was. Yeah. You know what's interesting to me, too, is that Michael Conforto is usually a great hitter. Like He's actually, to me, just t- kind of taking a step back, looking at the last four or five years, he's one of the best pure hitters in the National League East. He's not having a good season. He's, he's one of those guys who you look at is like, well, why are the Mets in the position they're in now? Conforto is a part of that. And yet Conforto has torched the Nats this year. Like if all you do is watch Conforto when he plays the Nats, you'd think he's an MVP candidate. Michael Conforto came into games on Saturday with a 945 OPS against the Nats this season. That's only going to go up with this home run. So it's just kind of odd. Like a guy who's not had a very good season, certainly by Michael Conforto standards, Boy, has he given it to the Nats, and he obviously did that on Saturday. Yeah, you're. I feel like he's a guy who always pulls it down the line, though, typically, right? And this was going the other way with it, which I, I thought it was a nice piece of hitting on his part. But yeah, I mean, you're right. You see the, the stat lines that come up for each of these guys when they come up to bat, and you're like, you can see how this team that has some very accomplished hitters is just not scoring runs this year. They're home run leaders. It's crazy. It's not at all who you think it should be. Like Kevin Pillar is second on the team in home runs. Now, he hit two of them in this game, but Alonzo has not been what he's supposed to be. Lindor has not been what he's supposed to be. Baez, since coming over in the trade, has not done a great job. I mean, those fans were kind of on the brink of really letting them have it in this game. If they didn't score there in the seventh, and if they end up losing a game to Sean Nolan and the Nats two in a row, they lose. There might have been some pretty angry people leaving City Field tonight, and it is striking to me that a team that thought that it was a lot better than this is proving to not be that great. No, I mean, on paper, this should be a team that, I don't know if you say runs away with the National League East, that's a bit too strong, but should certainly be in a better spot. And I think if you're a Nats fan, it's impossible to ignore Francisco Lindor. 10-year, $341 million contract. He has a 687 OPS on the season. Now, I know we're just getting going with the deal, but you know, he wasn't that good for Cleveland last season. I wonder if there is already maybe a little bit of regret in New York giving him that contract. We'll see. But when you know, when you think about Trey Turner and should the Nets have paid him and you know, why did they trade him away? Well, look at Lindor. Trey wanted Lindor money and uh, looky looky at what all Francisco was doing so far here into that contract. So with Sean Nolan, I mean, look, we've talked about him and I think we both have kind of had the same sentiment of, is there really a point here to pitching Sean Nolan? It's a bizarre story. He had not pitched in a major league regular season game since October, 2015, prior to these three outings here with the Nats. This is another 30 something who the Nats have summoned from AAA Rochester this year. He was not that impressive over his first two starts. He did look good though in this game, 
I'm not trying to do the thing of, well, is he maybe a piece or anything like that, but what did you make of his outing? And I don't know, maybe there is a little more to him than we've given him credit for. What I liked is he threw strikes, 51 of 71 pitches. As a team, they did a great job, actually, of throwing strikes. They threw 87 of 124 pitches for strikes in this game, 70% as a team. I mean, that's really good. They didn't walk anybody. So, I mean, there, there really were some good things to pull out of this. It just really boiled down to one terrible outcome on the pitch from Thompson to Conforto. But I liked how Nolan threw strikes. I liked how he changed it up and threw kind of the whole kitchen sink. The sequence that I got the biggest kick out of, now it ended badly, but on the second Pilar home run, the pitch prior to it was a 58-mile-an-hour curveball. I mean, Levon Hernandez, I I remember Levon throwing 59. I don't think he ever got to 58. And I asked Nolan about it afterwards, and he said, yeah, he's actually trying to do that, throw it like that slow. Then he comes back 92 fastball the next pitch, and well, home run. So it didn't quite work out. But I like a guy who can do all those different things for you. And all things considered, again, you go five and a third, give up two runs, no walk, six strikeouts. That is a huge win. And, you know, you just hope he can keep doing that and give you a chance every fifth day because I don't think he's going anywhere. I think he's going to keep starting until someone else emerges as a better alternative for them. Yeah, you mentioned the strikes to balls ratio. That was impressive. 51-20, perfect bottom of the first, perfect bottom of the second, gives up that leadoff homer to Pilar, bottom of the third, gives up another solo homer to Pilar, went out bottom of the fifth on the one-two pitch, but that's it. Uh, Sean Nolan overall did do a nice job. The two-one pitch. There's a fly ball hit out to left, waiting is Jones, the Mets of the world champion. Gary Kuzman being mobbed. Look at this scene. Nats Chat is sponsored by Silver Branch Brewing Company, located in downtown Silver Spring, only a one-minute walk from the Silver Spring Metro Station. Silver Branch is a perfect jumping-off point to Metro down to the game. Park at the Cameron Street parking lot and meet up with friends for a beer and a bite to eat before Metroing down. You can also get Silver Branch beer at Nationals Park. Beyond the Gnome World, one of Silver Branch's four flagship beers is available at District Drafts at Section 223. Brewed to be light and refreshing, Beyond the Gnome World won a gold medal for the Saison beer style at the Great American Beer Festival last year. Beyond the Gnome World is deliciously dry and thirst-quenching and the perfect beer for hot summertime ball games. You may not be familiar with Saison, but take our word for it, baseball season is the perfect season for Saison, and buying from District Drafts to support your local breweries is a gnome run. Go to Section 223 and try Beyond the Gnome World the next time that you're at Nats Park, and make sure you stop by Silver Branch, located in Metro Plaza, just steps from the Silver Spring Metro. Silver Branch Brewing Company, when you come in, let them know that the Nats Chat Podcast sent you. Hey, Nats fans, this is Eric Bramer, play-by-play broadcaster for the Fredericksburg Nationals. Time is running out to see the Fred Nats in their inaugural 2021 season at beautiful new Fred Nats Ballpark. With promotions every night of the week and a talented roster that includes Jackson Rutledge, Jeremy De La Rosa, Brandon Bossier, Yordi Barley, and many more, the time's never been better to see tomorrow's Washington Nationals stars today. Visit FredNats.com for ticket information and follow us on social media at FXBGNats for the latest updates. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. 
Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The kick and the pitch. Swing and a line drive right center field. Nimmo on the run. Can't get there. It's beyond him. And will go all the way to the fence in front of the Nationals bullpen. Around third and in to score is Luis Garcia. And into second standing with his second double of the game is Lane Thomas. So with the Nationals offensively, Lane Thomas was back out there as the Nationals starting center fielder and number one batter in this game. Victor Robles did not play in the game, and Lane Thomas was back to being effective. You know, a uh, mini slump, if you want to call it that. His previous two games had not gone that well offensively. Okay, fine. But Lane, in this game on Saturday night, two for five with an RBI double and another double. Top of the first, a leadoff full count double, despite having been down to the count at 1.12. And then in a Nationals two-run second inning, a two-out RBI double. This is what I loved about Lane Thomas's evening. Two innings into the game, the guy already had four total bases. He had two doubles. Like, instant impact. Already, you have certified yourself having a nice night. Lane Thomas certainly did that. And the second one was a two-out RBI double with a runner in scoring position. And let's just say this. How often has Victor Robles come through in those positions this year? He has not done that with any consistency at all. And I think it's telling that Lane Thomas got this start because Robles is healthy. <laughs> he certainly could have been in there. He's not under the weather. He's not under the weather. No, uh, he started Friday night. Not a whole lot happened there. He struck out three times. So Thomas gets the nod this one. And if you're going to keep producing like that, you're going to keep getting opportunities. So Robles, to, to quote your favorite stat here, he's got 19 RBI on the season over 367 plate appearances. That's not a good number. That's not a good number at all. Even as a leadoff hitter, number eight hitter, doesn't matter. You've been in positions where you could drive in runs, and he has not done that with any consistency. And so I think this is something here. I think Victor Robles has gotten a lot of opportunities, and they now have somebody who they want to look at, who's intriguing, who could maybe fill that role for them, and they're going to keep looking at him, and maybe they'll both play. But if if you're somebody who just assumes that center field is Victor Robles' job both the rest of this year and going into next year, you are mistaken. He has had the opportunities. He has not seized it. And I think they are open to alternatives at this point. Yes. Well, I suspected this was something when uh, we weren't seeing Victor and we got the Victor's under the weather excuse. But, you know, you don't want to sit here and call Davey Martinez a liar. And I don't know that he made that up, but boy, it sure worked out well that Victor wasn't feeling well for those few days. And now he is feeling well. And Lane Thomas is out there on Saturday night. And look, Lane Thomas is doing a very good job. I mean, you, you cannot say otherwise. Lane Thomas now as a nat at the major league level, 12 for 33. He has four doubles. He has a triple. He has six walks. 
I mean, small sample size, of course, but the guy, it feels like almost every game is coming through. He comes through in a big spot in this game on Saturday night. All props to him. And the trade to perhaps end all Mike Rizzo trades continues to look sparkling. John Lester for Lane Thomas. The other guy who continues to slay it is Riley Adams. Now, I would assume we'll see Tress Barrera in game three of this series with the Sunday day game. But man, Riley Adams just continues to produce one for three with an infield single and a hit by pitch. And that's the thing, man. Riley Adams can run a little bit. I know he's a bigger catcher. And you know, I'm not trying to say he's JT Real Muto in terms of like athleticism for a catcher, but the guy can move. That was a good looking leadoff single on an infield single on a one-two pitch. And that Nationals one run seventh. And then he scores from third on the two-out wild pitch uh, by the Mets reliever Trevor May for a 3-2 Nats lead. Love seeing that. The guy's got some athleticism to him. He was also running on a pitch from first base. Uh, I forget who the hitter was. Was it when Thomas was up or when Escobar was up? He actually was running from first. Like, (laughs) they gave him the sign and and let him run. So, yeah, absolutely. Some things you can do. Scoring on the wild pitch by putting pressure on them. You know, I thought that was an interesting sequence because Soto comes up first and third, two outs. And the Mets have to decide what we're going to do with him. And they kind of went after him. But by the same token, I'm sure Trevor May's nervous about Juan Soto and not wanting to leave anything over the plate. And so he spikes a pitch in the dirt. It gets all the way to the backstop and they end up scoring the go-ahead run without Soto ever putting the bat on the ball. And I think you can give some of that credit to Soto in the reputation that he has that I think it maybe put a little more pressure on May to be perfect. And he wasn't. And combine that with Adam Speed coming on third base. And there you go. I mean, that, that would have been a pretty interesting way to win a game if they somehow won 3-2 and that's how they got it with Riley Adams infield single first to third on Escobar's single and then scores on a wild pitch while they're trying to pitch to Soto yeah I mean we you said regarding game one when it was 2-1 you were like is the game gonna really end this way and you kind of had that same feeling at 3-2 but you said well maybe maybe they do win that way you know they won game one that way maybe they can somehow do it back-to-back games did not happen. Yeah, Juan Soto's had kind of a quiet series so far. He, on Saturday night, uh, Disco one for four, has a one-out single in the top of the first, but he strikes out on seven pitches with Alcides Escobar in second and two outs in that Nats one-run seventh inning. Speaking of Alcides, a.k.a. Derek Jita, another ultra-productive game for the number two hitter who will not be removed from that spot because all this guy is producing three for four with an RBI single, two other singles, a stolen base, and a terrific defensive play. Now the pitch. Swing at a ground ball left side. Backhanded by Escobar. Jump throw across the diamond. In time, on the fly, for the out. That retires the side. Alcides Escobar with a spectacular play to his right into the hole. And a jump throw with a whole lot on it. Not even a close play at all at first base. And that retires the side. I have called Alcides the ultimate dumpster diver, and he is, but I mean that as a compliment, and he did it again multiple times on Saturday night. Two-run second inning, he has a two-out RBI single for a 2 nothing Nats lead, despite having been down to the count of 1.12. Top of the fifth, he has a one-out single and a stolen base. And the Nats one-run seventh, he had a two-out single on a 1-2 pitch. And then how about the defensive play? This was a really nice play. This was for the third out in the Mets one-run fifth inning came on a Jonathan Villar ground out. Escobar, a good-looking backhanded stab on the outfield grass while running to his right and then delivering a strong no-hop throw across his body to Josh Bell at first base. There was no pick required for Josh Bell on that play. That was really impressive athleticism. 
Great defensive play by Escobar and another productive offensive game. That was as good a play as I've seen this year from pretty much anybody on this team. That was fantastic to get to the ball like he did and then to make that throw with his momentum going the other way. And I say this with all due respect, I'm not sure Trey Turner gets the throw there. Wow. Trey's thing was the jump throw. Well, I don't know if you can do that while you're going in the opposite direction. I just don't know that he had the arm to make that play. Now, Trey do a lot of good things. I'm not trying to knock on Trey at all. And to suggest that I would rather have Alcides Escobar than Trey Turner, no. So don't even start tweeting at me or emailing us. I'm not at all suggesting that. Just that particular play, I thought Escobar played that perfectly as well as you could. That was as good of a play as I've seen from a shortstop this year. You combine that with the hits. He's got a 10-game hitting streak now. And they aren't meaningless hits. I mean, that was a two-out RBI opposite field single for the the second run after the Thomas RBI double. You know, that was a nice piece of hitting. He can run the bases. There's a lot to like. I don't know if he could do this over a full season. Certainly, there are better shortstops out there. But I just keep thinking to myself, the position this team's going to be in next year with so many other positions they've got to figure out. If you have a, you know, serviceable starting shortstop who could be retained on a pretty cheap contract and seems to be doing well and likes it and is a mentor to the young guys, I would certainly give it a a shot. At minimum, I would think about bringing him back as some kind of utility player uh, or maybe start the year as a starter, but then could be bumped out if somebody else replaces him. But why wouldn't you want him back? Given the position the team's going to be in next year, why wouldn't you want him back? Well, and that's the thing. You don't have to bring him back as a starter. Bring him back as an option. You know, we talk all the time about the Nats needing to have more positional versatility. He offers that. He can play two premium defensive positions, shortstop and second base. There's no reason not to have him back on the cheap, at the very least, as like your super utility man in terms of the middle of the infield. Alcides Escobar, by the way, now, uh, as a Nat, a 717 OPS. Francisco Lindor this season has a 687 OPS. 10 years, $340 million doesn't buy you what it used to. So you can email us at the Nats Chat Podcast, natschatpodcast at gmail.com. Charlie Lynch wrote us. He said, so I read Mark's column about Escobar and it got me to thinking for shortstop next year and maybe beyond, I see three options. Bring back Escobar on the cheap and he'll do a serviceable job. You could sign a Miguel Rojas type who will be more than Escobar, but not break the bank. Or Sign the big free agent like a Corey Seager or Javi Baez and spend some money. I think what they do here will give a hint to what they think for 2022, at least. Thoughts? Question mark. I think that would be kind of telling how they handle shortstop for next year in terms of like a sign for where ownership is at with the state of the franchise. But again, to go back into this thing of spending big money, Corey Seager's been hurt a lot. So I don't know that you're going to get the bang for your buck that you think you are with a guy like Corey Seager. Now, if he's healthy, is he a great player? Yes. But if he's healthy, look up Corey Seager's games played throughout his career. This is not a Cal Ripken Jr. situation. He has not been an Ironman. No, you're right. We don't really know what the plan is this offseason. I think they're still trying to figure that out. But reading between the lines and just kind of viewing where this is headed, I would think that they're not spending big money this winter, certainly not at that position. I mean, If they thought they needed a good shortstop next year, they would have kept Trey Turner, right? They could have had another year of him. So to me, I don't see the money being spent. I think it's more of a short-term thing. And then a year later, maybe you're going out and spending some money. But are you going to go big? You you can say, okay, well, you're going to sign a Seager or a Trevor Story or a Baez for like long-term because they'll be part of your next winning team. 
Well, to get one of those guys to come to you in 2022 on a rebuilding team, you're going to have to overpay for them. This is going to go back to the Jason Worth signing in 2011. You're going to have to give extra years that you other teams might not need to to lure them to D.C. So is that the kind of contract you want to get yourself stuck with? No. So I think it's much more likely it's a shorter term thing. And that's where I think Escobar could fit in or somebody else who who's a, a short term kind of solution for you. But I'd be surprised if they spend big at that position this winter. I know there's a lot of shortstops out there, but if you're going to spend big money, why didn't you just keep Trey Turner? Yeah, I mean, it would be because you didn't think you wanted to pay him what he wants. But obviously, if you need to pay somebody else what he wants, then it's like, well, why didn't you just keep the guy you already had? So, yeah, I would be surprised by that. And I also, again, it's just I think you have to be leery of giving big money contracts. I think the better way to do it is cheaper deals or you know, like like Charlie said, a Miguel Rojas type, like you can go middle of the market and maybe, you know, try to figure something out that way. But it is remarkable. We may look back upon this year, John Lester for Lane Thomas, cash considerations for Alcides Escobar, <laughs> two trades that nobody's really paying that much attention to when they happen. And they end up being two of the nicer transactions that Mike Rizzo pulls off this year. Just across the board. I mean, it, we were kind of just talking about, oh, well, they got Brad Hand. They they traded him away to another team and almost didn't really matter what you got from him. Well, you may have gotten a legitimate hitter in Riley Adams. You know, Mason Thompson, I know he didn't have a, a good game this one, but overall, like, there's some stuff to like there. You got him for Daniel Hudson. You know, we still haven't seen who they haven't come up yet, the guys they got for Schwarber and Harrison and Gomes. I mean, you just take all of this together and lump it in, and if they end up with, like, five big leaguers out of all that, and a couple of them are star caliber players like that is such an impressive job. And it's not always just about the big ones, the Dodger blockbuster trade. Sometimes these other moves can be just as significant in the long run. And they've done it over the years. I've talked about this before, but turning Matt Caps into Wilson Ramos, turning Christian Guzman into Tanner Roark, like these are important moves that can help you in the long run. And I think Rizzo deserves a lot more credit than maybe we sometimes tend to give him for those kind of moves. The thing, too, with Escobar is, okay, you re-sign him this offseason. Maybe he's good for you next year. Maybe you're not good. You trade him. You know, you don't you don't have to keep him beyond uh, July of next year. You could trade him, too. So I would look at it like that. Like, maybe bring him back as a potential trade chip. So all kinds of possibilities with something like this. It has not been a good series for Carter Keyboom so far. So when it comes to Game 3 on Sunday, that's something to be thinking about he has yet to get a hit in this series, so you'd like to see him get on track. But with Game 3 on Sunday afternoon, it is a 1-10 first pitch. Let us hope this game starts on time, unlike the first two games in this series. But it'll be an Eric Fetty outing. And, you know, it's one thing Paolo Espino in Game 1. It's one thing Sean Nolan in Game 2. But Eric Fetty is someone we're looking at. We're saying, all right, what can this guy be here? We've been dancing this dance with him for a while. We certainly have danced this dance with him this season. He's coming off a really nice outing. 5-1 win at the Miami Marlins on Tuesday night. One of the best starts of his career. One run in six into third innings. Ten strikeouts. Things had not been going well for him since coming off the 10-day injured list, which he was on due to that left oblique strain. But we saw in that last outing, the Fetty we saw over the first 10 starts of his season, he had a 3.33 ERA over those first 10 starts. I, you know, I don't want to be overly dramatic or something like this, but I do think this is a semi-big start for Fetty of... Was that game at the Marlins because of the Marlins? Or was this because you're getting your act together and you're better and you're maybe just maybe going to end your season on a high note? Right. I mean, that was a big time start. Ten strikeouts, 
and getting all the way to the seventh inning, which is not something that we necessarily think of him and, you know, was efficient enough to be able to get to that point. Now you're facing the Mets lineup. Like we just said, they've been really bad. I mean, really bad. So maybe they're not that much better than the Marlins. And so maybe it is a good matchup for him. Now he has faced the Mets already this month, a couple weeks ago, gave up two runs and only four innings in what was a double header game. So they were kind of had the quick trigger on him. It wasn't awful, but not his best. And you go back, he had a really good start against them in June, seven scoreless, two hitter, one of his better outings of the year. So I think it could be a matchup that favors him if he can command the way that he has been, if he can get ahead in the count, if he can put away hitters, keep the pitch count down. I agree. I think we sort of overlooked him because we only think of him as number four, number five starter. But I think the rest of the season is very important for Eric Fetty because think of it in these terms. We still don't know if Strasburg, you know, what he's going to be next year. We don't know how Corbin is going to be in fitting into it. We don't know if Joe Ross is going to be healthy and able to pitch for them. They need starting pitchers. Okay. It's not just Josiah Gray and Cade Cavalli. Like they need some others. And if you have Eric Fetty, who can be just a reliable, take the mound every fifth day, give you a chance to win, that's an important thing. They don't have the depth that maybe they did coming into this year, we thought they did, where they maybe had excess starters. They're not going to have that. So I think this is important for Fetty to finish strong and just firmly establish that he is one of the five going into next year. Well, you mentioned Cade Cavalli. As I was humming my drumbeat today, Gray Cavalli Rutledge, Gray Cavalli Rutledge. I was excited. Cade Cavalli was pitching on Saturday evening. It was the Rochester Red Wings at the Syracuse Mets as the Nationals' current AAA affiliate was facing a one-time Nationals AAA affiliate. And things did not go so well for old Cade Cavalli in this game on Saturday evening. And what was a 5-3 Syracuse win over Rochester? Cade Cavalli, five runs in three innings. Uh, Gave up five hits, gave up one walk, issued a wild pitch, issued a hit-by-pitch. He threw 33 strikes versus 23 balls over 56 pitches. All five runs came in the bottom of the third inning. Now, of course, we are not panicking. Of course, we are not uh, saying, well, Cade Cavalli is shot or is a bust or anything like that. But obviously, not the start to his AAA run or not an outing in his AAA run that you would want. No, but I think this was an important step for him to get to. And I think the whole point of this all, as we said, was to start facing some hitters with a little more experience. Hitters who might not expand the zone the way they do at the lower levels. Guys who've actually been in the big leagues before. So this was the the Syracuse Mets he was facing. And in the lineup were a couple names you may have heard of before. Luis Guillorme, Albert Almora Jr. These are guys with some big league experience. So I think that's important for him to learn how to do that. Now, the final line doesn't look great, but he started off fantastic. He retired eight of the first nine. 0-2 to Lee, swung on and missed for strike three. So Cavalli strikes out the league's leader and on-base percentage in Khalil Lee. Everything happened with two outs in the third, and it kind of fell apart there for him. Single, wild pitch, a walk, a hit batter, three more hits. So he threw 35 pitches just in that last inning. And my guess is, we, you know, as we're recording this, I haven't heard from anyone who was, uh, you know, there able to report on exactly what happened. But my guess is that they looked at it and said that was too many pitches to throw in one inning, so we're going to pull him and not put him back out there. I mean, obviously, he can throw more than 56 pitches. He can go more than three innings. But the workload in that third inning was so high that I think they just decided to pull the plug. So no panic button here. You know, it's a start he needed to make. 
maybe learn a few things from it about how to uh, get these hitters out, how to finish off innings when you have two outs and nobody on, and then go take them out again in five days. But it's just kind of reminding everyone that as great as you can look in the lower levels of the minors, each step is important. And it's not as simple as always saying, oh, he dominated at double A, therefore he's big league ready. No, there are steps to this whole process. And there's nothing wrong with letting him go through all those steps. Even if it means we don't see him in D.C. this year, that's fine. Let him get his experience at AAA and then come to spring training next year and we'll see what we have. Yeah, and, you know, it might not be the worst thing in the world to have an outing like this. You know, learn to struggle a little bit, learn to come off a bad outing, something like that. Get get humbled to an extent, you know, it kind of thing. As long as it's a, a one-time thing or not something that happens on the regular, you know, maybe it, it does some good for him. Cabert Ruiz in this game, 0 for 4, but he has an OPS of 942 for AAA Rochester. So Cabert continues to do well. We also had appearances for Wander Suero and Gabe Klobositz in this game. A reminder that Suero is down there and... Man, you haven't heard his name in a while. I would think at some point he's back up just because that's the way things go with this Nats bullpen this season. But a guy who had been a staple, right? One of Davey's favorites, uh, warming him up every game, if not using him in every game. And uh, he's been buried at AAA for a while now. Yeah, and they wanted him to work on some specific things. And he's actually been hit pretty hard down there. So the whole issue, remember, up here, he couldn't command the cutter and everything was you know off the plate and he's walking hitters and falling behind. So they told him to go down there and just work on throwing it for strikes. Well, he's ending up throwing it right over the middle of the plate and getting hit hard. So he's got to find that balance of in between the two. And so far, it hasn't happened. So I don't think they're going to call him up until they feel like he's had a chance to really iron that all out. But yes, I think we will see him again before this is over. They haven't completely given up on him. And we haven't talked about Tanner Rainey who's dealing with another injury down there, a side issue. This has turned into just a complete lost season for Rainey between multiple injuries, the COVID IL, really getting hit hard. I mean, a guy that we thought coming into this year, in all truthfulness, after you trade away Brad Hand and Daniel Hudson, Tanner Rainey should be the closer right now, but he had done nothing to show that he deserved to be that guy. And he may lose out of this altogether because right now Kyle Finnegan has taken over. Yeah, I mean, it's another reminder of just how year-to-year these relievers are. I mean, Tanner Rainey could be excellent next year. He was excellent last year, but this year has been a debacle for him, and you just you just don't know what these guys. It, it is maddening if you're a GM trying to put together a bullpen year in and year out, because unless you're talking about Mariano Rivera and a handful of others, these guys are just so unpredictable and so unreliable, and you throw your hands up. You're like, I, I don't know. I mean, we signed these guys. We think they could be good, but... You just have no clue. It's, uh, it's, it's Especially for Rizzo, who when he signs someone to big money, the guy doesn't perform. And then when he doesn't do anything, we all say, why didn't you do something with the bullpen in the offseason? It's like, hey, he's darned if he does, darned if he does not. Well, Sunday morning, a reminder, you can listen to the radio version of Nats Chat. We have a show that airs Sunday mornings at 9 on 1061 ESPN in Richmond. If you're in the Richmond area, listen on 1061 ESPN. If you're out of the Richmond area, you can listen on ESPN richmond.com we continue to enjoy the feedback from you guys you can tweet us at nats underscore chat you can email us as well nats chat podcast at gmail.com including if you would like to submit your voice memo regarding your memories of october 2019 your tales of october 2019 just record yourself speaking in your smartphone then email the file to us again the email address is nats chat podcast at gmail.com Com. You can get yourself a Nats Chat Podcast t-shirt by visiting natschatpodcast.square.site. All Nationals radio highlights on Nats Chat are courtesy 
of 106.7 The Fan. For Mark Zuckerman, I'm Al Galdi. We'll talk to you next time on the Nats Chat Podcast. And we leave you now with another voice memo, this one coming to us from Joe in North Carolina. Good afternoon, Al, Mark, and Tim. My name is Joe, and I live on the coast of North Carolina, and I've been a subscriber to the podcast since day one. There are baseball fans out here, but I stand alone with the Washington Nationals in a town of around 4,500. I work from home, and I start my day with the previous day's podcast, and I can't tell you how much camaraderie and insight you guys bring each morning. My 2019 World Series story is a bit crazy, and looking back, the stars must have been aligned perfectly for everything to happen as it did. I went to my first Major League game in 2019, back in May, when the Nats were on their way down. It was a Strasburg do-little show against the Cubs in a 5-2 win. That was just a few games before the iconic 1931 record. Fast forward to October, and I've been religiously following the season while simultaneously planning my wedding for November 2nd. I remember driving to the mountains where my soon-to-be wife and I were to be married. Alone in the car, I managed to find a staticky broadcast and being totally baffled by the Trey Turner baseline interference call in Game 6. The next evening was our last meeting with the wedding planner at a brewery in Asheville, where we both went to college, and it was all I could do not to compulsively check my watch for Game 7 to begin. We finalized as much as we could, leaving as little to chance as possible, for the wedding that is. I raced through town trying to find a bar, playing the game. I found one and messaged a buddy who happened to be in town, We were able to watch from the beginning through the sixth inning before the restaurant closed for the night. Back in the car, I drove to a college haunt of mine that I hadn't visited in five or six years. We got there in time for the foul pole blessing from Howie Kendrick and the biggest curly W in Nats history so far. Three days later, I married the love of my life, still riding high from the World Series victory. I joked then that my life had peaked and it was all downhill from here. So my bad for 2020. This new team with Soto at the helm is giving me hope, though. Thanks for all you guys do. I'm looking forward to the future. First pitch to Turner. And a full swing and a dribbler up the third base side. This is going to be a tough chance. Peacock hurries his throw, and the ball gets away. The ball through Guriel down the right field line. Gomes is going to head for third and Turner to second as Guriel's glove got knocked off, and they're going to call Turner out for being out of the baseline. Oh, my. So instead of second and third, they're going to send Gomes back to first, and Turner is out for being out of the baseline. And Davey Martinez is livid at Sam Holbrook. He's saying he's on the outside. Davey is livid. And he wants to talk to Sam Holbrook, who's coming over. So Turner is out, and Gomes goes all the way back to first. And Martinez is steaming, pointing up the line, saying this is where Turner was running, right down the line. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger. Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.